0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Minister Glenda Robinson was at the National Museum of African American History in Washington with her
1: daughter. And she goes, there's the picture. Of the march. Of the march. And I'm like, it was a crazy moment. Everybody was like, is that you?
0: It was her in Memphis after the death of Martin Luther King Jr., whom she'd marched with just days before. Robinson got a Lifetime Achievement Award recently named for Dr. King, she'll reflect on the challenges that remain.
1: There's a troubling and concerning thing that's happening now, and we call it the Karen Syndrome, is when a white woman calls the police and says, there's someone in this area who doesn't belong here.
0: Why Robinson always gets a receipt and taught her children to plus the discoveries she's making about her ancestors who were enslaved. As a member, you play a powerful role. That's because the stories, voices, and music you hear on CPR all begin with your support. Make a difference for your neighbors and your fellow Coloradans with a gift now at (laughs) CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When sanitation workers in Memphis went on strike in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. traveled to the city to lend support.
1: But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work, that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth.
0: That was 55 years ago tomorrow. Days later, thousands of people joined Dr. King to march through Memphis. Among them, Glenda Strong Robinson of Longmont. She's been a part of the civil rights movement ever since and has now received a lifetime achievement award from Colorado's MLK Day Commission. Robinson is a minister at Second Baptist Church in Boulder, only the second woman to serve in that role there, and she serves on the executive committee of the NAACP in Boulder. Minister, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much. It's an absolute joy and delight.
0: It goes both ways. You were a college student in Memphis when Dr. King gave that speech. Do you remember how you felt at the time?
1: Somewhat. But what grabs me is why he was there. Now that I'm older, Mm -hmm. of course, at that time, I was just a 19 year old junior trying to get through school. And I must tell you, the times were very tense and it was scary.
0: Why was it scary? How did you experience that?
1: When people died, Dr. King showed up, two men died. And those two men, I say that because there are pictures of this dilapidated garbage truck. Black men were not allowed to ride in the cab. They had to swing off the back. I remember the spring like it was yesterday. Sleet, cold, icy, rainy. This was February
0: of 1968. So the notion of being a sanitation worker who could not go in the cab— difficult work would have been made even more miserable in those elements
1: it was inhumane the way they were treated was inhumane the most that anyone ever made was a dollar and 90 cents per hour there were two and three generations of sanitation workers in one apartment families you know generations great grandpa grandpa and pa and their kids Two men, Robert Walker and Echo Cole, climbed in the back of this dilapidated sanitation truck. And because it was rainy, as I described, they climbed in the back with the garbage. And there are two theories. One is that it was just so old that it automatically tripped the back with the garbage.
0: Killing the men.
1: Yes. The second one is that someone walked along and flipped the switch. The bottom line is they were ground up Hmm. with the garbage. And so they died, those two men, 30 and 36 years old. And so I also always say freedom is not free, because I know many people who gave their lives for the cause of freedom. When that happened, Dr. King was not coming to Memphis. He told the the clergy, whom we, we knew very well. You all work out your situations with the mayor and with the administration on your own. But at every juncture when people died, he showed up.
0: You know, the story of those fallen sanitation workers makes me think about how black lives were devalued. Are are de- <laughs> devalued worse/r worse/r <laughs> thank you for that and it makes me wonder if at the time you felt that yourself because you you talked about it being a scary time
1: well i think just the idea of jim crow colored white i went to segregated schools and i graduated in 1965 But Brown versus Board of Education started in 1954 with Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP, which ruled that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. Ha ha.
0: (laughs) It took a while, (laughs) I think is what you're
1: saying. Uh, Well, and nobody paid attention. When I say nobody, we're even here right now. You know, if we neglect the history of our past, we're bound to repeat it. And so states' rights, I mean, they trumped, not really, but they didn't pay any attention to the federal laws, whatever was on the books. In the Well, let's go back to we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Nobody paid any attention to black men. So then we had this exchange and this debate over what it really constituted to be a man. And we're still there.
0: And, of course, the most famous symbol, I think, of those marches are men holding signs that say, I am a man. Did women hold those signs, too? No. No. Okay. This,
1: not in that march. Okay. Okay. In that march, every man had a sign that literally said that. And I'll tell you the essence of that, because in the South, no matter how old you got, my dad was 89 when he passed, he would have been called and considered a boy. You know, do this boy, do that boy. And so the essence, you ask me about the value if it's embedded in you from the beginning of your life that you're nothing or your your worth is questioned, then you begin to say, mm, you know, could, could they be right?
0: Have you fought against that yourself?
1: Absolutely. I I've been telling this story of late. I don't like telling it because it casts a shadow on me, but I was in a history class at Memphis State. I would say there may have been 20,000 white students and maybe 50 of us, 50 African-American students on campus. There was me and Willie Johnson in that class. And this professor says, I know that you people are probably the best and the brightest from your schools. You probably were valedictorian, salutatorian whatever but i can just tell you this the most you can make in my class is a c you people the two
0: the of two us. my goodness
1: yeah how humiliating mm. i mean the more i think about it as i got older and but it was that c that you were talking about of worthlessness you're not quite there you just don't quite measure up so willie and i looked at each other and i mean that's the kind of stuff that makes you want to open up the floor <sighs> And crawl in. Guess what? I got in that class. I got an F. So on my transcript, there is an F. I don't like to tell that story, but now the whole world will know.
0: It still that. stings, that F.
1: It still stings, and it's still there. And what's funny about that is, <laughs> 55 years later, I am the historian for Historically Black Second Baptist Church of Boulder. And I'm the historian for the NAACP Boulder County branch. And I am working on our upcoming exhibit at the Museum of Boulder, entitled Proclaiming Colorado's Black History.
0: You showed him, I think it's fair to... (laughs) 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 But, but, you know... um... It's just, it's like disgusting, of course, that he would do that. It's remarkable to me that he would say it.
1: Let me ask you something. Mm -hmm. Who was I going to tell? Where was I going to go on a campus of 20,000, 25,000 white students? The two of us in this class, maybe 50 black students on campus. Where was I going to go? I mean, today we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've talked about affirmative action. We've talked about, you know, all of these other things that are good conversation pieces. and, And a lot has been done. Don't get me wrong. A lot of things have changed. But the more things change, the more they remain the same. As I look around and just see all the things that are happening around us. These are scary times.
0: What in your modern life and contemporary life do you point to that scares you? Is that a question of police brutality? Is that a question of, I mean, goodness, in the pandemic, we saw the different health outcomes based on people's race. We know education and poverty are—
1: All of it. uh Uh-huh. That's saying... I feel like um, I answered the question <laughs> for <you. laughs> That's saying that if we neglect the history of our past, we're bound to repeat it. We're repeating a lot of that. You know, to talk to your point about where I am, I'm in a much different place now than I was then. Mm-hmm. I was a very angry, very hurt, very confused individual. And I thought I hated people. But I had these Christian parents who taught love, just as Dr. King did. Turn the other cheek, and I'm like, what? Hmm. Are you kidding me? They didn't know what I experienced. But my father would always say, you have to carry on. You can't make trouble. They didn't know I was in that march that day. They thought I was in class. (laughs) Oh. Uh Uh-huh. So, uh, and and he said, and you have to be decent to all people no matter what they do to you. And you can't make trouble for me because I was born here and I'm going to die right here. And I called him an Uncle Tom and we had arguments and all. I had to go back. You said that to your father. I did and I had to go back and apologize to him because... He was one of the most respected black men in the town that we lived in. And so what he was saying was, you have to do whatever you have to do to get along with your fellow man. And you can love beyond limits. And it's good for you. Dr. King said the same thing. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Mm. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And that's essentially what my parents were saying.
0: But it took a while to come around to that for you. A
1: long time.
0: Minister Glenda Strong Robinson is our guest. Her work in civil rights stretches back 55 years to her student days when she marched with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., She recently received a Colorado Lifetime Achievement Award for her activism. More, including her memory of the day Dr. King was assassinated. When we return, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For the first time in many years, Denver voters will choose a new mayor. That's just one of the many things on Denver's ballot. Everything a Denverite needs to know before ballots are due April 4th, all in the 2023 election guide at denverite.com. Minister Glenda Strong Robinson of Longmont was a student at Memphis State University when she skipped school on March 28, 1968, to protest. Thousands of people demonstrated— many with signs declaring, I am a man, to support striking sanitation workers. They were led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had to be rushed away when windows were broken, the police moved in, and the day turned violent. Take me to the march. So your parents didn't know you were there. They didn't. I imagine they wouldn't have been too happy to learn.
1: They would not have been.
0: What do you remember of the march?
1: So there were two marches. The one that ended in a riot. That, I am a man. I just remember the rumblings. It seemed peaceful. And yet, sometimes you can have that eerie feeling Mm. that something is going on. I think everyone was a little bit nervous because the mayor was threatening also. They were trying to start a union. I'm not going to grant the opportunity to do that. I don't want you in my town. I don't want you in my streets making trouble. And so that wasn't going well. It just the whole overall tenor—unease,
0: of uneasy, uneas,
1: lots of uneasiness—and
0: then there was a second march.
1: The second march was without Dr. King. In both marches, it was a lot of people. I'm going to say ten thousand people, maybe, maybe twenty thousand. That last day.
0: Of course, the reason he wasn't at the second march is that it came after his assassination.
1: Four days. April 8th.
0: A remarkable before and after experience you you had. Wow.
1: So just in reflecting on what my parents always preached and always taught, love one another, get along. You know, They wouldn't accept fighting in our household Mm -hmm. among each other. There was a Jewish rabbi from New York holding my hand on one side and a Catholic priest on the other. In normal circumstances, they would never come together. San Francisco, New York City. And we were walking together singing, We Shall Overcome. I don't remember their names. I'm 19. They were literally established in their own professions. But
0: remarkable now to think of you as a minister. (laughs) You know, and so... There you have the rabbi and the priest yeah, and the future. And little
1: black girl.
0: The future Baptist <laughs> minister.
1: Yeah, that is. Thank you for bringing that out.
0: Well, you're so welcome. What do you remember about the news of Dr. King's assassination? Where where were you when you heard?
1: We were at the student center at dinner, my roommate, my sweet maid, and I, and Drizzly. Freezing rain, all that, very cold.
0: That same kind of weather, yeah.
1: Same kind of weather. And we walked into our dorm. That was unforgettable also because there were maybe six of us, six black girls in the dorm. And the dorm mother, one of them, one was very nice. The other one was just hateful and mean. And she would tell the girls, we had a lot of friends. I had a lot of friends in the dorm, do not speak to us. And just because we were here, they did not have to be nice to us. And don't allow us in the TV room. Well, I didn't grow up with a TV anyway, so that wasn't a thing. Hmm. There were a couple of girls that watched the stories during the day, no. you know, soap Days opers. of Our Lives yeah, soap <laughs> and all that. I wasn't interested in, the, in that. But the night that we came into the door, this was 6 p.m., I loved Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is. The CBS
0: know. News anchor.
1: The C- CBS News anchor. And so we walk into the dorm, and there was just rumbling. They were just talking and laughing and kind of cheering. And then they came to us as we came into the door and said, Y'all can have the TV. And we said, Oh, what's going on? Mm. And then they started running up and down the halls, cheering, just screaming, and just yay. And then they said Martin Luther King has been shot and he's dead.
0: They were jubilant at that news?
1: Very jubilant, screaming, cheering. Yeah, and then they said he got exactly what he deserved.
0: So you found out that he'd been assassinated from... The white girls who were celebrating his demise.
1: Yes. And so we grabbed each other in the lobby and just held on. Just held on. I mean, because what he represented, I think, for the community, particularly the black community. So we had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965, even though Medgar Evers was killed and and the three civil rights workers, people were dying And then the Watts riots, and then Chicago, Detroit. There was a lot of civil unrest.
0: Yes, and I think about the assassination of RFK and, you know, some years before of JFK.
1: JFK, yes. Uh,
0: Yes, an incredibly unsettled time.
1: Very much so. Mm -hmm. And so we just held each other, and and one of them said, what are we going to do? Because he represented that hope for us. He represented that dream, and it was almost like, the dream has died. And so, we we just stood there and held, and they seemed like forever. They screamed throughout the night, just all up and down the halls. It was three, three floors. Their of, glee. Yes. Uh-huh. Just, just cheering. So, to be honest with you, let's see, this would have been April, April 4th. I don't know. I, th- I think I was numb, probably for the rest of that semester.
0: And that second march where you were between the rabbi and the priest, that was the memorial march after his death, correct? Correct. Yeah.
1: And let me tell you what else was, I guess, deafening is, could be a word. Let's say there were 10,000. There may have been 20,000 people. In that march, mm-hmm. we walked hand in hand, and nobody said a word. My thought was, now, Dr. King had f- four children, Bernice, Dexter, Martin III, and Yolanda. Yolanda was 12 years old. Martin third was... 10, Dexter was 7 or 8, and Bernice was 5, and she was lying on her mom's lap. Her mom had the doily on. I just was thinking, America has killed these kids dead. Mm. Their lives will never be normal, and how little we value... Human life, human lives, especially those of black people.
0: More of that message being underscored for you. It strikes me, too, that you are, at the time, you're grieving for a movement. You're grieving for the hope of a country. And then you're also grieving on behalf of a family. That kind of macro and micro strikes me, Minister.
1: That plus... The unsettled times, there was a move and a push to prove the ineffectiveness of Dr. King and his nonviolent movement. And then we had the Black Panthers starting and active, saying nonviolence doesn't work. And then we had Malcolm X. There was just all of this uncertainty.
0: What was the road ahead? Yeah.
1: Nobody knew, and I don't think we've gotten back there because a leader for black people has not stepped forward. Well, uh, could you blame them? (laughs) Mm. Speaking of that— Is
0: it dangerous, though, to have one person, you know, be the embodiment of a movement?
1: I think that just evolved. Everybody's talking about where we are now, the civil rights movement began in the basement of a little black church with a little 26-year-old man that just mailed in his dissertation and moved from his dad's church in Atlanta, Georgia to be as assistant pastor to become the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And about one week later, a little 42-year-old woman said, I'm not giving up my seat to a white man. I'm tired. I'm no. I'm not doing this. Oh, so all of a sudden, here we are. And then the Montgomery bus boycott.
0: You're started. speaking of course of Rosa Parks. So. Rosa Parks, <laughs>
1: Martin Luther King. Yes. The, the and so they, the Montgomery bus boycott needed a leader. Ah, oh, that's making president of SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And oh by the way, we need a civil rights leader. Let's make him that too. So his life really was never the same.
0: Minister Glenda Strong Robinson reflecting on the life of Martin Luther King Jr., with whom she marched 55 years ago. Robinson, who lives in Longmont, is a leader at Second Baptist Church Boulder and the NAACP Boulder County. Our special continues into this next half hour with Robinson's discoveries about her own trailblazing family, plus her day of self-discovery at the National Museum of African American History. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There are a lot of personal stories we don't hear.
1: And I just started crying in the middle of the store. From people and places that are just around the corner and just beyond sight.
0: I'm Luis Antonio Perez. I'm on a mission to find these stories in Colorado and share them with you. The fire has given me resolve for prioritizing my life. My Story So Far is a new podcast from Colorado Public Radio that brings you personal stories from around the state. Find My Story So Far wherever you get podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's our job to introduce you to fascinating people in our own backyard, and our guest today is one of them. Minister Glenda Strong Robinson got a Lifetime Achievement Award this year from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission. She lives in Longmont, directs family care at Second Baptist Church Boulder, and helps lead the NAACP Boulder County. Earlier, we heard about her march 55 years ago with Dr. King in Memphis, one dimension of her fascinating background. Your grandparents were remarkable people, and I think that there's a lot about you today that uh, comes from them. Would Absolutely. you share Would you share a few words about them?
1: I'd love to. I'll tell you about my grandpa. Um, I have a picture of him, and we, we all knew of him. He was dead when I was born, Mm. but they've kept him so alive because he was an educator and a a preacher. (laughs) But he was born in 1860, enslaved, at age five, at the signing, which this is not history that people can just tell, but at the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation by President Abraham Lincoln, he became a citizen at age five. And then he went on to teach in the community and preach. And all of my family on both sides were church planters, and so they built churches. And so those are now historical monuments now in D.C. and in the state of Tennessee. So he went on to go to college in the 1890s, and he taught For 51 years. My goodness. At the end of the 51 years, he was forced to retire at age 70 and not granted a pension because colored people were not allowed to be a part of
0: the The retirement retirement association.
1: Yes. And so my parents and all of his siblings and all had to care for them, my grandma Mm. and him, until they passed. But what a man! What a man he was, Murda Sylvester Strong. I do have a picture of him. Wait, what?
0: What is the gesture you did when you said his name?
1: He always wore a suit, okay, and tie, and he always had suspenders. So he would open his coat and put his put his thumbs his thumbs under his his suspenders, suspenders, which is
0: what you're doing.
1: And his clock, his watch—you know the watches that are in those pockets—would be there. So then I have to tell you about the great-grandparents that I'm just learning about because they were enslaved. They started in um, Virginia, walked behind Covered Wagon, it was 33 people, through North Carolina into Tennessee and ended up on the land that me and my siblings now own.
0: And so it's fascinating to me, you're still uncovering family history.
1: Yes, yes. And so they produced the first black doctor in Shelby County. That group, this grandfather that was the slave, enslaved person, and them, the Stuarts. so they were kind of in-laws, they petitioned for the first public school, not just for blacks or whites, but public school, and it was granted. So part of that history is why Memphis and Shelby County Public schools Mm. exist today.
0: I just keep hearing the threads of religious and educational trailblazing in your family. I would love for you to tell us the story of how you learned that the Smithsonian (laughs) had a photo of you marching after Dr. King's death.
1: So I was on a Christian conference and I would say it was a divine moment. And the reason I say it's divine is because on Wednesday, we went to the museum.
0: This is the Smithsonian Museum of African American History. In Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah. yeah. This is in 2019, I think?
1: Yes. And so I went there, and um, we started in the, on the top floor. And, of course, Chuck Berry and and Little Richard and all of them, they're glitter and glamour. His Eldorado Cadillac is up there. That's oh. the first thing you see. This is kind of exciting. My purpose for doing that was I was looking for two relatives. I don't know if you've heard of Bobby Blue Bland. Uh, He's a blues singer, kind of synonymous with B.B. King. They were good, tight buddies. Bobby is my first cousin. Found him. And then I was also looking for my other cousin, Roman Brooks, who was a lead dancer with the Alvin Ailey dance troupe. Oh,
0: my goodness.
1: Yes. Yeah. Quite a storied black
0: dance group. Yeah. Yeah, And
1: I grew up with him in the fields. We played together.
0: And so you were looking for people you were related to. Mm -hmm. And I understand you returned to the museum a few days later, I I think with your daughter.
1: Yes. It was very moving. A different kind of experience from Wednesday because, you know, the glitz and the glamour and all that was up on the top floor as you move your way down.
0: And this time you started in the basement.
1: I knew to start in the basement and I wanted to see the slave ships and the actual you could just look over in the thing and the stories are very moving and just thinking about the people brought here against their will mm-hmm. and all that. Anyhow, it's a lot of emotions going on. So we went through that and my daughter said as we were leaving that I was just kind of in a place and she said, Mom, you know, you've been doing all this work in Longmont and Boulder and Denver and CU and Front Range, and don't you think you're in this museum? <laughs> that, that's what I do. <laughs> Honey, not a chance. And so we keep coming up the escalator, and we come up, and there's Frederick Douglass, big picture, and down here there's Abraham Lincoln, and in the middle of that is that picture. And she goes, There's the picture right there.
0: Of the march.
1: Of the march. And I'm like, oh, Wow. So by the, it was a crazy moment. Everybody was right. Is that you? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it just was a.
0: So there was obviously some uh, excitement. Yes. Were, were there tears? Was that a moving experience? Did you get goosebumps? I have goosebumps at the telling of it, <laughs> Minister.
1: I, I don't know. I, no, no. I was just, I, it was unbelievable. Surreal. It was a surreal moment. Mm-hmm. Because I know the picture well. In fact, I brought the book that the picture originated from.
0: I'm just going to say, you strike me as someone who is well prepared. Because for this interview, uh, you have in front of you a small pile of Stuff. of documents, some of which are laminated. You have this giant bag from Staples uh, that would fit poster board that is also filled with imagery and, I imagine, educational materials. What does all this tell us about you?
1: That I'm a keeper of records.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I'm a keeper of history. But uh, let me tell you what's something funny. I participated in conversations or talks in Longmont not long ago.
0: And Longmont's where you live.
1: Longmont is where I live and so I was at the museum and I brought all of these. Uh Uh-huh. And so These are
0: often in tow for you.
1: They're often in tow Uh for me and everybody was looking at me like where's she going with that (laughs) stuff? And so as I was talking the guy that was kind of in the booth is like, do you have that electronically? And I was like no.
0: <laughs> it's paper.
1: It's paper. It's paper and cardboard. Uh, I'm about to be 75 years old. Uh, this is not a
0: PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> this
1: not a PowerPoint. <laughs> I want to show you the real deal. <laughs>
0: And we'll wrap up our special today with Longmont's Glenda Strong Robinson after a break. When it comes to civil rights, what challenges does she think are unique to Boulder County? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: You said your love for me Shine on me, turn on your love light. Let it shine on me, let it shine, 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 let it shine.
0: Many of Colorado's biggest challenges stem from climate change, the quality and the quantity of our water, air pollution and wildfires, extreme weather. Stay informed about one of the most serious existential issues of our time with CPR's weekly climate newsletter. Every Monday, a roundup of stories curated by CPR's Climate Solutions team comes to your email inbox and gives you a deeper understanding of climate issues and their solutions. Sign up for your copy now at cpr.org climateweekly. For her work on civil rights, Minister Glenda Strong Robinson of Longmont has gotten a Lifetime Achievement Award. It comes from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission. Dr. King isn't an abstract historical figure to her. She marched with him and marched again a few days later to mourn his death. Robinson is a leader with the NAACP Boulder County and Second Baptist Church Boulder. Minister, I'm curious to ask you, because you mentioned your civil rights work. Well, your daughter mentioned it to you at the Smithsonian, your civil rights work in the Boulder area for decades. And I was very eager to ask what challenges you think are unique to that part of Colorado. It's thought of as a more liberal pocket of Colorado. It's also overwhelmingly white, I think of Longmont, where you live, as central as well to the Chicano rights movement. Mm -hmm. What challenges today are unique to Boulder County?
1: I think everything about it is unique to where I'm from. And as a matter of fact, Longmont and Boulder County and Boulder has seen such a transformation, particularly Longmont. Because there is an overwhelming Latino population Mm -hmm. there. And I work very closely with them on all the reform. We have what's called a Longmont Multicultural Action Committee, which my sister Madeline is one of the founding members. And El Comete, you may have heard of that, was formed as a result of two young Latino boys being killed by the police which happened to, in 1980 when we moved there. Oh. And who knew that in 1981 our family would have the same tragedy? Uh,
0: you had a relative who died in police custody.
1: Yes, yes. He was, <laughs> That okay, I'll say it a different way. Please he do. He was stopped for speeding, yeah. supposedly doing 35 in a 25-mile speed zone. And two hours later... He lost his life to the chokehold.
0: I believe the coroner found it to have been homicide.
1: Absolutely. And the police Death denied that. Death at the hands that. of another, other than by suicide, because at first they said he committed suicide.
0: I hear you saying that there is a shared fate in Longmont between black people and brown people.
1: Yeah, and, and they call it the BIPOC community, which all these are new terms for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but... We're having lots of conversations about Black Lives Matter and Black Lives... Uh, all Lives Matter and all that. And so I usually tell my audiences, please don't say that.
0: Please don't please say don't which say, part?
1: don't say all lives matter. Mm-hmm. We know that. But it's not all lives that are being struck down in the streets before our very eyes, shot down, beaten, pulverized to, you know, beyond recognition. And so... And I say that from a sensitive place because my family experienced that.
0: You were kind of quietly reacting when I said a little earlier that Boulder uh, was very white
1: Mm -hmm. and liberal. Mm -hmm.
0: You hinted at something. (laughs) Would you say more about what you were thinking when I said that?
1: So there are two documentaries that are out that are done by my friend Katrina Miller One is entitled The Silence of Quarantine, and I'm narrating that. And it is about the Black senior population in Boulder County. For people who are social
0: and who are active, the COVID lockdown was probably the cruelest way to end life.
1: And the isolation that they feel. Because church was their lives.
0: And the pandemic meant that wasn't possible.
1: Pandemic shut all that down. My goodness. So we've we've been. And so at my church, my title is, uh, one of my titles, (laughs) I got a lot, is Director of Family Care. And so I get to visit with these people and talk with them often. And I know their plight. The other documentary is entitled, This Is Not who we are. So this is not who we are, and it opens with the incident with Zaid Atkinson, who was picking up trash around the area where he lived. There's been a long history of dehumanization, and that dehumanization hasn't simply taken place in Mississippi or Alabama or Texas, but also here. It just may look different than it does in the South. There's a troubling and concerning thing that's happening now, and we call it the Karen syndrome, is when a white woman picks up the phone and calls the police and says, there's someone in this area who doesn't belong here or who looks suspicious or I see someone who shouldn't be. I don't think they should be here.
0: Minister, I'm thinking of that black birder in Central Park, too. Remember that? There was a bird watcher, a black bird watcher, watching birds in Central Park.
1: And this notion of
0: you don't belong. You
1: don't belong. And that's the issue. Do you belong? Who belongs here? Everybody is seeking a sense of belonging, just like in that class. That man was saying to me, you don't belong here. You don't. I don't think you're qualified. I don't think you can make the grade. I don't think you can, you know, you, you just don't quite measure up because I don't see you as a human being.
0: <laughs> and I also think about the push these days. If you have a concern, don't make the police your first call. Is it someone who might actually need help? Do you need to involve the authorities at all
1: right right but as far as we're concerned why why is that the first call Mm. why is it that you would think we would be up to no good or doing something wrong or be in a place where we could injure or hurt or damage or anything
0: do you carry that with you the fear of that the awareness of that it's a potential...
1: I I carry it for my children and for my grandchildren. And I'll tell you why. As a kid, we had, you know, the country store, the general store. Yeah. And my kids think, they used to think that I was freaking out. But they don't anymore because they've had the same experience. But you could go into a little country store and every kid wants a candy bar or a jawbreaker or something. Soda. <laughs> Soda, yeah. And so you walk in the store and and you pick up a candy bar and you pay the five cents for a baby Ruth and you walk out the store. Now, the owner sold it to you. But he comes, if it's like the, me and my fr- cousins, my friends, my sisters, brothers, he comes out the store and says, where'd you steal that from?
0: Even though he just sold it to you. Mm-hmm.
1: And we say, "We bought this." Here you are, a little eight or nine year old. We 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 gave you the money. No, you didn't. Where's your receipt? So I don't ever leave a store without a receipt. My son likes to get it, and then as soon as he gets out the door, he you know he doesn't like carrying paper around. And I'm saying, please do it for me.
0: This goes back to what you said earlier that. You feel the more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: Absolutely.
0: That receipt image, minister, will be emblazoned in my mind for the rest of my life. It will. (laughs) Good. Good. Because it happens. Yeah.
1: And it's still happening today because some of us, well, I'm I'm jumping subjects. I'm going to say the next generation and the next generation would not notice it. But people follow you around in the stores, just expecting you to shoplift or to take, steal something. Why? Because we have the image that black people steal. Does this
0: leave you (laughs) feeling hopeless? I mean, you've dedicated decades of your life to making this better, and yet you're still dealing with it. So before we let you go, do you have hope? I do. Where does it come from?
1: My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Uh I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I say this, hope is that expectation of future good. Many of us are moving toward hopelessness, but I couldn't be any more hopeful because I just did a Martin Luther King celebration. And the theme- Is this the
0: one where you got a lifetime honor?
1: Yes and no. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> I, I, no, I do these programs and have been for yeah. the last, uh, since the 90s. Okay, this is That's separate what from my, your big award. It's separate, separate. Right. But I say that- The hope is the expectation that future good is going to happen. And so the theme of our program this year was the dream, dot, 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 keep hope at the center. And why did I choose that? Because I put together a team of young people and they said, what are you leaving for us? You know, civil rights, yes, we we, we know that worked. The dream, we know there were challenges. You all made it. Uh, The dream, yes, we we heard about the dream. But right now, what are you all leaving us? We have student debt up to our yang-yang. We've graduated college. We're trying to rent an apartment. We can't afford $3,000 a month, $2,000 a month. We also... God forbid, want to buy a home one of these days. But we're in our parents' basements. And so what? And that's why I said, you got to have hope. The hope is that the expectation of future good will happen to you. Just as we survived what seemed like impossible times and times with no end, you too will make it. You got a dream and you got a dream big. And I, of course me, I say you got to go with God. But I want to give people something to stand on and something to hope for. Because we were put on this earth. I am your keeper. I am my brother's keeper. You are your brother and sister's keeper. We got to get back to that. Right now we're in a spiral. We're in a spiral That's been emboldened by, you know, you do me in, I'm going to do you in. That's not what we were created for. That's not what this earth or this world was created for. And I always love the poem that says, no man is an island. No man stands alone. Each man's joy is joy to me. Each man's grief is my own. We need one another.
0: I hear the theme being your connection to Christ, but also your connection to other people. To
1: humanity. Hope
0: springs from both.
1: Exactly. Absolutely.
0: Minister, thank you. I'm so grateful for your time and your story.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: 74-year-old Glenda Strong Robinson of Second Baptist Church Boulder and the Boulder County NAACP. She's the recipient of this year's Lifetime Achievement Award from Colorado's MLK Day Commission. Very special thanks to producer Nell London for today's special. Audio engineering by Pete Kramer. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.